0: Jacob's Wells Media presents Strange Tales from Humble Life by John Ashworth Narrated by John McDonough The Father's Sins In my younger years, when reading the Second Commandment, I could not help thinking it very hard that God should visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. How can the little children help their fathers being wicked, thought I? And if the children are helpless and innocent, why must they suffer for the sins of their parents? How can this be just? what my power of reasoning when reflecting on this perplexing subject could not accomplish. A little incident clearly and fully explained. Crossing the country to attend one of my Sabbath engagements, I came to a turnstile at the entrance of the by-path leading to a Sunday school. Three children stood together at the stile, two of them evidently brothers were clean, well and neatly dressed, and looked healthy and happy. The third was pale and dirty, his feet bare, and his thin little body was clothed in rags. Speaking cheerfully to them all, I said, "'Well, my little friends, so you are going to the Sunday school, are you?' "'Me and my brother are going.' replied the youngest but Benny cannot go why does not Benny go I asked because he has no shoes and only those ragged clothes his father drinks Benny held down his head and with a sad sorrowful countenance looked on his torn trousers and bare red feet poor little fellow he did not speak for he could not. That moment the words of the second commandment, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children, rushed like whirlwind to my memory, and I saw at once that it must inevitably be so, that as long as cause and effect go together, it cannot be otherwise— and that the terrible words are not intended to teach that God punishes children, but as a warning to parents, to teach them that the consequences of their wickedness and bad conduct would most surely fall on their children. Poor, ragged, sorrowful, pale-faced Benny is one evidence. And the following illustrations are amongst many others. On a recent visit to one of our large towns, when walking along a narrow street full of courts and corners, I stopped amongst a group of fifteen children who were stoning a dead rat. Near this group was another of about the same number playing at pitch and toss with five new farthings. Had all the clothes of these thirty children been offered by auction, Thirty shillings would have been their full worth. I took one of the new farthings, and held it up above the heads of the whole company, for both groups had come together to see what was up. I promised a penny to all that could spell farthing. Not one of them could. I then asked if any of them could say, "'How doth the little busy bee?" "'or sing me any other hymn for children. "'But none of them were able. "'One sharp fellow said he could sing Whiskey Dick. "'A shout of laughing and yelling greeted this announcement, "'for Whiskey Dick was evidently some well-known personage. "'On turning the corner, I was surprised to find a still greater number "'gathered about the door of the evening news.' all waiting for the second edition. Many of these were shivering with cold, and nearly all of them, like the former groups, clothed in rags. When I began to speak to these, the whole crowded round me like a swarm of bees, crying out, Give us some coppers! Pitch a copper this way, old chap! I made them a short speech about a little boy called Jack. On bidding them good-night, I found my property less by one silk pocket-handkerchief. What sort of parents had these dear children? Why were they shivering in the cold? About ten o'clock the following day, according to previous arrangement, I entered through many folding doors into a large building, called by some the industrial school, by others a reformatory. Some two hundred children were in these rooms, every one of whom had gone through the hands of policemen and magistrates. On the ringing of the bell, all came from various corners to one large central room, and quietly ranged themselves in order, the boys on one side and the girls on the other. Then came my turn to stand on the platform and speak to the whole. I had looked in their now clean features as one by one they entered, trying to read the soul in the face, or measure the power of intellect in the eye, and as they sat in silence before me, the least ones the nearest, all anxiously waiting for the first word, my heart throbbed with deep emotion for I felt how greatly I loved them, every one. Several reminded me of some of my own children now passed away to the skies, and oh, how cruel seemed the conduct of those drunken, wicked parents, whose heartless, unfeeling conduct had brought down their own sins on the heads of these innocent creatures— Dark indeed seemed the children's future. Heavy and black seemed the cloud that hung over their path. While in the institution to which shame had consigned them, they would be under some kind of protection. But when their time expired, where must they go? Again to homes that were to them no homes, but nurseries of misery, cruelty, and crime. Could every child tell its own story, tell of the hardships and sufferings already endured, tell how it was they had come to the reformatory? A tale would be unfolded that would make the guilty parents quake and cause even the fat brewer and publican to quail. I here mention the brewer because a few days before one of these worthies, in company with another gentleman, had paid a visit to this reformatory. He was not only a brewer, but the mayor, and the mayor also of a notoriously drunken town. The gentleman in the company of the brewer and mayor introduced him to the convicted children, telling them that the mayor loved children, was very kind to children, "'and would speak to them about being good. "'What was the brewer's speech? I know not, "'or how far his conscience troubled him, I cannot tell. "'But the two hundred victims before him "'were the victims of his trade, "'and if the banknotes and sovereigns in his pocket "'could have spoken, they would have said, "'Mr. Brewer, many of us sovereigns?' once belonged to the parents of these wretched children, but they exchanged us for the terrible, maddening, soul-and-body-destroying stuff that you make for your own selfish profit and gain. If you will trace us back the way we have come to you, sir, you will find that we were last in the pocket of the landlord that sells your drink.' HE GOT US FROM THE HANDS OF THE DRUNKEN FATHERS AND MOTHERS OF THESE NEGLECTED CHILDREN, WHO THROUGH YOUR DRINK BECOME WORSE THAN BRUTES. THEIRS IS THE SUFFERING AND PAIN, YOURS THE GOLD, THE PRICE OF THIS RUIN. I KNEW ONE OF THE VICTIMS. AND I COULD SEE BY HIS MOIST EYES AND FLUSHED COUNTENANCE HE KNEW ME. I WILL BE HIS MOUTHPIECE, AND TELL HOW LITTLE JIMMY CAME TO BE THERE. JIMMY WAS THE YOUNGEST OF A FAMILY OF FIVE. TWO OF HIS ELDEST BROTHERS HAD GONE FOR SOLDIERS WHEN THEY WERE MERE LADS. THREE WERE STILL AT HOME. HIS FATHER HAD A GOOD TRADE and when disposed to work, could earn considerable wages. On the Saturday night, Jimmy's father and mother would regularly go out together to the market, call at one or two dram shops, come home late, fry steaks and onions until they scented the whole neighbourhood, send some of the children for drink, sit down and drink and gorge themselves until midnight. Most of the Sunday they both lay snoozing in bed, and the children were left to run wild. They attended no Sunday school, had no books, not even a Bible, for the spiritual teachers who claimed them as part of their flock did not recommend them to read the Bible, telling them they did not understand it. One evening... I saw Jimmy carefully carrying a small pitcher with both hands. One shoe was out at the heel, and he was without stockings. What have you got there, Jimmy? I asked. Whisky, for my mother's sore arm, he replied. Does she rub the sore arm with the whiskey, my lad? No, she drinks it. She says it does the arm most good if she drinks it. Jimmy's parents often quarrelled, cursing each other in the presence of their children. After one of these quarrels, the father went away. No one knew where. Jimmy had then become a short-timer in the mill, but his mother cared little about him, and he had often to work without food. He one day offended his mother, and she threatened to kill him. He durst not go home that evening, but wandered about the market, mostly about the peas, tripe, and black pudding stalls. Weary, hungry, and sad, he crept into a box amongst some straw under one of the stalls, and fell fast asleep. And it would have been a mercy to the child if it had been the sleep of death. During the night, the market watchman found him, pulled him violently out of the box, handed him over to the police, and the day following he was taken before the magistrates. And there stood poor little Jimmy, with the sins of his father upon his head, and that head just above the prisoner's box, scarcely visible to his judges, in rags and tatters, half-starved and half-asleep. His cruel, drunken father had run away, leaving him to a drunken, merciless mother. He could not read or write one word, but he could weep and call aloud for mercy, and bitterly he did weep when he heard the magistrate sentence him to prison for one month, When the month expired, Jimmy turned his face toward his native place, and in his broken shoes for twelve long miles wended his weary way. With sore feet but a sorer heart he sat down on my doorstep and begged I would be his friend. For several weeks Jimmy was under my care, but his mother again claimed him and I was powerless in law. In six months he was again before the magistrates for stealing a loaf of bread, and this time sent to the reformatory. Here was one case, and only one out of the two hundred before me. What then must have been the sum total of all their hardships and suffering? had not the sins of their fathers fallen heavily upon them talk not about their being bad wicked children as i looked again and again at their sweet innocent faces i could see there no marks of guilt but i could see what unmistakably said love us care for us watch over us guide us and train us up in the way we should go, and we will be good children, we will not depart from it. He who best knows the hearts of children was grieved with those who had so little patience with them, and would have sent them away. He would not be debarred their company, and made their humility and youthful innocence a standard for Christian life. And I could not help thinking that if he were walking through the towns and cities of England, as he walked through the towns and cities of Canaan, he would not pass by these helpless innocents, but would put his hands upon them and bless them. The humble poor, He'll not despise or scorn the meanest name. A small article in the corner of the room in which I am writing this sketch reminds me of another evidence of the truth of the second commandment. In fact, there is evidence on evidence multiplying on every hand. I do not mention what the article is. It is of no value." and is only kept as a reminder. It takes me back to the time when I stood beside the dead body of a youth who had just hanged himself. Neglected and surrounded with continual pernicious examples at home, he, like thousands of young ones, glided into the current and whirlpool of moral destruction. For he was not only corrupted by example at home, but by a neighbour who nightly, for his own wretched gains, drew mere children to his room, called a singing saloon, to witness polluting exhibitions, and hear obscene songs that must some day bear terrible fruit if we can conceive of double vengeance falling on the heads of any of our fellow mortals, surely it must be on the heads of these deliberate corrupters of youth. This boy had often gone home from his work, tired and hungry, to find no fire and no food, then set out to seek his mother, frequently finding her drinking, singing and dancing, in loose, bad company. The little fellow had once been for a short time in the Sunday school, and was not himself so far gone as to be insensible to the shame and disgrace that fell upon him in consequence of his mother's wicked conduct. It often caused him bitter tears, and in one of those moments of anguish and desperation, He rashly ran upstairs, and with a short piece of the clothesline, hung himself. As I turned down the sheet that was laid over his face, and looked on the fine open forehead, and now placid, pale countenance of the poor young victim of his parents' iniquities, I felt what it would be in vain to attempt to describe, but had some consolation in thinking that the good God to whom the child's spirit was now gone would know all about his temptations and sufferings in this world, would know how he had been neglected, abused, and starved until his intellect reeled and madness and desperation followed, causing the little fellow to take his own life. No doubt the judge of all the earth will do right. But we must not suppose that the iniquities of fathers fall only upon the children of the reckless poor, such as Benny and Jimmy. The stern but inevitable law pervades every social condition, every grade of life, leaving its mark to the third and fourth generation. We all know that physically it is so, that sensual indulgence impairing and damaging the Constitution is often transmitted to several generations. Our idiot asylums prove this and so it is morally, at least so far as regards the disgrace, for unborn children must share in the reputation of their fathers and grandfathers. Can the children of Arthur Orton, or as he persisted in calling himself Sir Roger Tichborne, now transported for fourteen years as a perjured impostor, escape sharing the odium of their father's wickedness, and will not their children be a marked race through the conduct of their grandfather? It must be so, and these weighty facts ought to teach parents how important it is that they should walk upright, lest their children should have to share their sins by having to hang down their heads all through life. Take one more example, and one from the higher walks of life. The name of this person I give not, out of regard to the feelings of his old friends, some of whom are yet alive. He had many names. One of them was Charles. When Charles was a young man, he had his corner in the church, and an active place in the Sunday school. His steady conduct and good reputation gained for him a small share in a small business firm. This firm, through an invention, soon became widely known, and in a comparatively short time Charles found himself growing rich. He then began to love money for its own sake, and determined to get as much as he could as soon as he could. He entered into speculations, and was fortunate, so fortunate that he purchased an estate, built himself a large house, set up his grand carriage, was made a J.P., had a good wine cellar, and was considered a great man. He married, and had three children, one son and two daughters. These he determined should all be rich, so he pushed on his speculations in various ways. He became a money-lender on high interest, and was by all considered a rich, safe man. His wife died, but his son and daughters grew up, had a good education, and the prospect of a good fortune. His speculations and love of the world took him from being a teacher in the Sunday-school, but did not entirely drive him from church. He had still his corner, but the corner had been enlarged by the addition of the next sittings, and now it was a grand square pew. But there was a dark shade over the heart and life of Charles. His love of money had corrupted his soul. Indirect dealings on the turf, helping to float several bubble companies, reckless speculation, costly wines, and a concubine produced the invariable results. A change came, a change that made him very silent, sit up late at night and take much wine. The family one day waited dinner for him a long time, but he came not. The iron hand of the law had laid hold of him. He had committed a serious forgery, and deeds with which he had been entrusted had been pawned. When the intelligence, which could not be kept back, reached the great house, the heart of the youngest daughter leaped AND KNOCKED AGAINST HER BREAST AS IF IT WOULD HAVE BROKEN THROUGH AND NEVER BEAT RIGHT AGAIN. HER SISTER TOOK TO WEEPING DAY AND NIGHT. YOUNG CHARLES KEPT HIS OWN ROOM, FEARING TO SHOW HIS FACE. THE FOLLOWING SUNDAY, THE FINE SQUARE PEW AT THE CHURCH WAS EMPTY AND BY ITS FORMER OCCUPANTS NEVER FILLED AGAIN. The sins of the father fell with a crashing weight on the children, a weight more terrible than if he had been killed on the spot. Ruined home, ruined circumstances, ruined hopes, but worst of all ruined character and blasted reputation were now their heritage, a heritage worse to them than death had the father kept to the Sunday school, kept to the church, been content with steady, honest trading, and honoured God with his substance, he would have been a cheerful, happy man, and his children the children of a noble, honourable father. But he had made haste to be rich, and pierced himself through with many sorrows— sorrows terribly falling on others that were innocent of his crimes. They must now bow their heads when in company, or when meeting old schoolmates or former friends. They must feel forever degraded and cut off from all society. This they did feel and never or seldom left the house until they were compelled to leave it by enraged creditors who took all or nearly all they possessed the poor stricken creatures then sought shelter in obscurity but the iron had entered their souls in four years the two sisters lay silent in the cemetery the blast had been too keen, the shock too terrible for their delicate constitutions and sensitive natures. Young Charles crossed the seas to find a home where no one knew him. He lived some time in his exile on a small income derived from the property of his mother, which his father's creditors did not dispute. He went one day into the woods to shoot, and was found almost dead from a gun accident, and was conveyed in a hopeless state to his lodgings. For several days he lingered, but was calm and sensible, talking to those around him about his former life, his former home, his mother, his sisters, and with choking emotion spoke of his father." HE ALSO TOLD THEM HIS OWN REAL NAME, WHICH, THROUGH SHAME, HAD BEEN ALWAYS KEPT SECRET. HE DIED, BUT NOT WITHOUT HOPE. WITH HIS LAST BREATH HE SAID, THANK GOD, MY FATHER HAD NO BROTHER OR SISTER, AND THAT I HAVE NO CHILDREN, THE DISGRACE OF THE FAMILY NOW ENDS IN ME. There will be no third generation to blush and hide themselves for the misconduct of their parents. This, at least, is one comfort. With this additional illustration of the second commandment, how forcibly come the words, The seed of evil doers shall never be renowned. If parents are reckless in regard to their own reputation, and care little about the consequences of their own conduct, as far as regards themselves, they ought not to leave a legacy of infamy to their offspring. Parents are the glory or disgrace of their children. The Word of God tells us that a just man walketh in his integrity— his children are blessed after him, and a good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. If we have nothing else to leave, it is a grand inheritance, for a good name is better than great riches, and it is worth a determined, constant effort so to live that our children may stand up in their own generation, and be thankful they are our children, and not have to be ashamed and blush for their father's sins.